0: You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Friends, what do you do with your losses? What do you do with your losses? Every single one of us today limps into this space with some sort of loss in our lives. Maybe for you it's a loss of a certain spiritual feeling. When we sing these songs, they don't connect in the same way, what Christians have called the dark night of the soul for a long, long time. Maybe for you it's the loss of a relationship or a loved one. feels like a part of you has been amputated, maybe. Maybe it's the loss of peace of mind, a descent into anxiety where there's weight in your chest and there's a, a cloud in your head. Maybe it's the loss of a place of safety or security, and you have this inherent mistrust when you enter new spaces. Friends, the experience of loss is universal. Every single one of us goes through loss many times uh, over and over in our lives. And that means that the world is constantly trying to give us strategies to deal with our loss. Out there in the world, people will tell you, here's what you should do with the pain and suffering and loss you experience. And by and large, our world gives us two main strategies. The first strategy is the sentimental approach to our loss. And we love this approach in our American culture in particular. We're big on the sentimental approach. We're taught to move on from our loss quickly, to not dwell in it, to not spend too much time in it, to soften it or explain it away so that we don't have to really reckon with it. That's why we say things like, good vibes only, right? We live in a good vibes only culture. Don't, don't worry about the loss. Don't worry about the pain. You can bury it. It's fine. Just, Keep good vibes in your life, good thoughts. We say things like, look on the bright side, right? As if the dark side isn't there. Just look at the good parts. Ignore the bad. And Christians sometimes are the worst at this. I remember in one of the hardest losses that I've experienced in my life, the death of my father when I was in high school, I had numerous people come up, well-intentioned people who care deeply for me and say, you know, God gained another angel. First, bad theology. Just putting that out there. Humans, not angels. They're not equal in the scriptures. So bad theology on the front end. But also, it's trying to turn death into a good thing. It's trying to say, hey, this tragedy that you went through, it's good. No, it's not. It's evil. It's wrong. It's bad. We like to say things like, God never gives you more than you can handle. You guys heard that one before? All the time. It's it's not. It's actually antithetical to the gospel. It has very little to do with our understanding of our need for Jesus. See, the whole point of the gospel is that we are needy people who can't handle things on our own, and that's why we need God. The gospel is not one of God giving us tools for self-empowerment so that we can leave him behind. It's an acknowledgement of our need so that we can bring our need before God. That's the gospel. In 2 Corinthians, Paul brings this up. He says, We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, For we were so utterly, unbearably crushed, and we despaired of life itself. It sounds like he's saying, you know, it feels like God gave me more than I can handle. That's what he's saying in this text. But listen to how he finishes this statement. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. The whole point of the gospel is that there are many things in our life that we can't handle on our own, and that's why we need God. And so the sentimental approach, you guys, to our loss, to our suffering, that approach that the world so often gives us, it's, it's not helpful. It sells uh, pseudo-inspiration via platitudes to us. And we take all of the tremendous loss and suffering and we box it into little social media graphics that we share with one another or things that we hang up in our houses that make us feel good in a moment but don't really address the pain. It ignores it, pushes it to the side. And when we do that, we can never really heal. If you push the pain to the side, you can never really heal. And so, in our world, many people swing the pendulum the other direction. We take a different approach to suffering. Uh, This is the cynical approach. The cynical approach teaches us to sink deeper into despair when we lose something, to just drown ourselves in the feelings of loss. And slowly, over time, we start to live without hope. We start to blame others. Our losses are always the fault of someone else, and not just something that we need to reckon with ourselves. Turn on your TV, flip on social media, you will see the blaming part of cynical approaches all around us. We start to only be able to see or speak about the negative things in our lives. We constantly complain and we're unable to find peace in our lives. We become that stereotypical old man or old woman, crotchety, sitting in their rocking chair, looking at the world and critiquing everything. And that cynical approach is trying to do the opposite of the sentimental approach. It's trying to deal with suffering. The problem is that it's only focusing on the suffering, and it can only see the suffering. And in that situation as well, suffering retains control over us. It starts to dictate our lives, and slowly over years, we become bitter, resentful people, dictated by our suffering rather than by hope or peace or life. And So the world, friends, tells us to deal with our losses in two unsatisfactory ways, a sentimental approach and a cynical approach. So we're left again with that First question, what do we do with our losses? We're continuing in a sermon series here at Midtown called When Things Fall Apart. We're looking at the prophet Jeremiah and the words he speaks to people who lost much in their lives. And today, we're getting to one of the hardest parts of this book because it's Jeremiah reckoning with his own loss in his own life. It's loss for doing the right thing. He experiences tremendous suffering and pain. But his approach is much different than the sentimental or the cynical approach. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't only focus on it. He instead goes straight into his suffering, names it explicitly, and then seeks life on the other side of it. And that's the practice of lament. It's how we as Christians say that we need to deal with the losses in our lives. And lament is central to the whole of the scriptures. In fact, two-thirds of the Psalms, the ancient book of poetry that we learn from, they're laments. They're trying to help us reckon with and deal with our loss and our suffering. And they're providing us a radical alternative, an approach that's a salve to the insufficiencies of our world. So friends, whatever loss you bring with you today, whatever loss you're limping in with, this text is here to provide us a way straight through it and to life and peace on the other side of it. If you have a Bible, turn it with me uh, to the book of Jeremiah. This is near uh, the end of your Old Testament, if you're flipping there. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 20, starting in verse 1. We'll read verses 1 and 2 and then skip forward to verse 7. If you don't have a Bible, the words are going to be behind me on the screen if you'd like to follow along as well. Jeremiah, chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Now the priest, Pashur, son of Immer, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pashur struck the prophet Jeremiah and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin Gate of the house of the Lord. Skipping forward to verse 7. These are the words of Jeremiah. O Lord, you have enticed me, and I was enticed. You've overpowered me, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughing stock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I must cry out. I must shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, then within me there's something like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I'm weary. Withholding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering terrors all around. Denounce him, let us denounce him. All my close friends are watching for me to stumble. Perhaps he can be enticed, and we can prevail against him, take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me, like a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble, and they will not prevail. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, you test the righteous. You see the heart and the mind. Let me see your retribution come on them, for I have committed to you my cause. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hands of evildoers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, travel back in time with me to the 6th century B.C. in the city of Jerusalem. Your name is no longer your name. Your name is now Pasher. I've given you a nickname. You're Pasher in this room. And you've been raised to be a man or a woman of the cloth. You've been raised to be a religious professional. Your father was a priest, so it's natural for you. And when you were younger, much of the religious establishment was corrupt in one way or another. There was ugly practices all over Uh, the temple, all over the spaces of worship. But as you've come of age and started to practice this yourself, there's actually been a great reform. These worship spaces have been cleansed of evil and wrongdoing. And, well, in many ways, crowds are flooding to the church now because of it. They're singing the right songs. They're praying the right prayers. They're doing all of the right religious activity. And you, Pasher, well, you're, you're the toast of the town. Everyone loves coming to hear you preach. You're positive, you're encouraging. You make sure that everyone feels safe and secure in their religious spaces. You work hard to know that every person who comes into your worship space leaves feeling better then than when they came. You make sure that everyone feels great about how great their religion is. But soon, you start to hear murmurs about some dude named Jeremiah. He's kind of an agitator. He keeps showing up to religious functions and telling people, hey, if you go in there, you're deceiving yourself. You better check first. Care for the orphan, care for the widow, care for the needy, or else all this religiosity, it's useless. It's pointless. He's making people feel bad in your religious spaces. That runs counter to your job, which is to make people feel good in those spaces. He's bad for business for you. And he's deterring these swaths, these huge crowds of people. He's discouraging them in one way or another. And one day, you get the chance to actually meet Jeremiah. You're like, I need to see what this guy's all about for myself. He actually invites you, Pasher, uh, along with a few other religious leaders, to join him on a walk outside the city. And so you decide, well, let's figure out what this guy really is all about. And when you're walking outside the city, you notice he's holding a clay pot not dissimilar to this one here. You're wondering, "What's, what's that all about? So you keep walking with him, and eventually you guys get to a little valley that's south of the city of Jerusalem. It's called the Valley of Hinnom. It was a place where there were really ugly practices that had happened for a lot of years, and you, Pesher, know that they're kind of still happening sometimes. Things like child sacrifice to other gods. Really egregious evil happened here. And then Jeremiah starts to preach. He says that God has crafted you, you people of Israel, to be good. He's formed you like a potter at a wheel, shaping you to be vehicles of his love and grace and justice to the world. And he's using this pottery as his sermon illustration. And you as a preacher, you're like, you know, actually, it's a pretty good illustration. You might have to steal that, right? You're actually building a little bit of respect for Jeremiah. But then things take a turn for the worse. See, Jeremiah starts to say that the religious establishment, like this pottery, looks really good on the outside, but on the inside, it's filthy. Underneath all of the bright lights and the impressive music, it's corruption. God's love and grace and mercy and justice are being overlooked whenever people leave their religious spaces. Jeremiah says explicitly to you that religion is not about making, making people feel good. It's about making people good. And he's, he says he's been pleading with these religious folks for days, for weeks, for months to turn around that there's love and grace waiting for them. Just come back, repent, and start to change your lives. Practice what you preach. But instead, their hearts have become hard, like this pot. Eventually, they've hardened themselves, and they've just decided that we're going to leave God behind entirely. They insist on oppression and brokenness. And so, Jeremiah says, because of their hard-heartedness, God's response is clear. That's what God is gonna to do to the religious hypocrites in Israel. God is gonna break this place. He's gonna destroy the city through the nation of Babylon. Now, Pasher, how are you feeling about Jeremiah's message? <laughs> Not so great, right? I mean, who does he think he is? You work hard to do your job. You work hard to make sure people come and do the right religious things. How can he talk of the temple being destroyed? That's blasphemy. If you're Pasher, you're boiling with anger at this. And so the question that we leave that story with is how will Pasher respond? That's the story that we've just read before Jeremiah chapter 20. And we quickly learn Jeremiah, or Pasher's response to Jeremiah at the start of this chapter. It tells us exactly what he does. He punishes Jeremiah. He has Jeremiah beaten the common punishment in that day was up to 40 lashes with a whip. So Jeremiah has stripes on his back. And then Pasher has him placed in the stocks. Many scholars and historians uh, link this word stocks to a twisting of sorts. The idea is that this is some sort of device that mangles or twists your body in painful ways. And it's not something that God ordained for people to use, but it's something that they used to make examples out of people they wanted to make examples of. And he does all of this near the upper Benjamin Gate which is a place that would draw the maximum amount of attention in that day. People would see him. People would mock him. And So the truth of God has been spoken, friends, to the folks in religious power, and they've rejected it. The ones who were supposed to know God best are the ones who have sent God and his messenger away, who have punished God's messenger. But then we know how these stories go, right? The hero triumphs. I mean, Jeremiah's going to come back. He's going to win the day, right? That's how... These things go. The good guy calls out the bad guy. He triumphs over the bad guy, and then there's a celebration. This is how all our movies go. You guys have seen the Avengers. They go, and they win, and then they have this great music, this triumphant music, and they have a parade, and everyone celebrates the good guy. That's that's how these stories go, right? That's not how this story goes. Instead, we get a powerful and potent prayer of Jeremiah's loss. There's no triumph. And that honestly feels a lot more like our experience in the day to day. Feels a lot more like the world that we live in. Doing good, doing as much as we can and still getting suffering, still getting pain, still being oppressed and mocked by people. And it's this prayer of Jeremiah that provides us a two-part template for lament, the way through our suffering for us as Christians. The two parts are grief and hope. So first, let's take a look at grief. Jeremiah starts his prayer by yelling at God. He's angry at the fact that God has called him to do this. He says, God, you designed me. I'm doing the right thing. I'm being faithful to you, and this is what I get? I'm following you, and I have to suffer like this? He says God overpowers him, that he's become a laughingstock, that people are mocking him with his own words. Later on in the chapter, we didn't read it together, but he says, Cursed be the day that I was born. Not even that he would rather be dead, but that he'd rather he'd never existed in the first place. That's how much pain he feels here. That's how much grief he's experiencing. Friends, Jeremiah is not sentimentalizing in any way. He's not ignoring it. He's He's naming it explicitly and clearly. And so we need to remember that the Bible doesn't teach us to sentimentalize our lives in avoidance of pain. It's not the biblical approach to our loss. These texts are deeply human. They get at all of the different cavernous reaches of our suffering and pain. And this is a refutation of a sentimental approach. And if our scriptures and faith in God don't do that, if they can't speak to every part of our human experience, then they are woefully insufficient If they can't get at every part of what it means to be human, well then, why are we doing this? Friends, we need a God, and we need a faith that can go into the valley of the shadow of death with us. And Jeremiah's lament reminds us that that's what we have. This is huge for us, friends. When we approach God in prayer... We, we do it because we need to, not because we feel great or because we're particularly holy. I've had a lot of friends tell me that it's hard for them to pray because they just don't really feel holy, and it feels disingenuous if you don't have the right holy words or the right holy feelings. There's no holy words or holy feelings here. This is a mess of human brokenness. This is raw and unfiltered. Friends, it's precisely when we least feel like praying that we most need to pray. It's precisely when we have been led to the painful truth that we're broken people and that the world is broken that we most need to come to God. Prayer is not just for great and highly esteemed moral and holy feelings. It's for the times when those things are lacking in our lives. You guys, sometimes we need grief because it reminds us who we are. It teaches us. It reveals our lack of security and safety. It leads us to our own need. That's something that we often forget when things go really well. I've been experiencing some of this in my own life right now. And I want to be vulnerable and honest with you all. I don't want to be the person who reflects back only on things in the past. Right now, I'm going through a lot of pain in my day-to-day life because of a herniated disc in my back. It's been happening for five, six months. and my whole life, I've been a pretty active person. And it's been debilitating for me. Really, really hard and challenging for me. And I've had to sit in prayer and grieve the loss of comfort, of health, of my body working the way that it should. And in the middle of that, it's teaching me, you guys. It's teaching me that I'm not an invincible person, that my body is suffering entropy because of our broken world. It's teaching me that rest is essential for my health, that my body needs rest. It's teaching me that I need God. It's exposing to me my pride, that I can make all things happen and that I can power through. It's exposing me all of those things. Grief is needed in our lives, friends. But lament doesn't stop with grief. It continues on to hope. That's the second part of lament. And at first, this prayer might not appear very hopeful. Right? Seems like Jeremiah has given up hope, given up faith in this passage. It seems like he's finally cracked, but... Pay closer attention. Who does he address these words to? Right at the start of the prayer, he says, Lord, the personal name of God. He addresses this to a God he knows can hear him, to a God that he believes, loves, and cares for him. This isn't Jeremiah giving up hope and faith. He's actually praying this lament because of his hope and faith. He's not cynically wailing into the void. He's crying specifically to someone he knows. That's why Jeremiah's prayer continues the way that it does. He pleads with God that all of this suffering, that all of this loss would be healed, that it wouldn't have the final word. He brings his grief to God and believes that God will show up and bring justice. He longs for God to do that because he trusts that that's who God is. And so what looks like cynical despair at first is actually a radical act of faith. When Jeremiah experiences what feels like the absence of God, which is something that many of us experience in our lives, he cries out directly to that God. He pleads for all of the parts of God that he knows to be true, God's love and peace and justice and joy. He pleads for all of those things to come into his life when he doesn't feel them. Underneath the cry of, the, of lament here is an acknowledgment that the world is not the way that it should be, an acknowledgment that God can make it so. So lament doesn't just leave us at grief. It teaches us to hope for our grief to be healed. Lament is rooted in the belief that God's character is one that longs to heal and that steps in and will. And here's the truth, friends. It's only when we fail to lament that we've truly lost hope. It's only when we fail to cry out that we've truly lost faith. There's a theologian named Russell Moore who talks about this. He uh, traveled to Russia a few years back, he and his wife. uh, They were looking at adopting a child there in need. And they get to the orphanage and they walk up and down the hallways with cribs on either side of them, these nurseries, and it's eerily quiet. There's not the typical sounds of babies cooing or crying or making noise. And so he goes to one of the people who managed the orphanage and he said, why is it so quiet? Why is it so silent? They say, well, the babies know that if they cry, no one will answer them. So they've given up Crying. The cries aren't going to be heard anymore, so they just will stop. There's no use. Friends, children who are confident in the love of the caregiver are the ones who cry. They wail and they moan because they believe that mom and dad can help them. They believe that mom and dad will show up. To cry out to God is to believe that God will show up, that God longs to show up, and to cease to cry, to cease to wail well that's showing us that we've really given up hope and so when things fall apart in our lives in those times of tempest and trouble and deepest despair lament gives us a framework for hope it trusts that our grief that our cries are heard by god in the midst of our losses in the midst of a world that's falling apart and that god will act to heal them it trusts god's character so lament is grief and hope. And as it turns out, when we practice those things together, when we grieve our losses, when we cry out for God to be God in them, something starts to happen. It actually starts to happen in this passage. Look at verse 13. In the midst of all this mourning and pain, Jeremiah sees that God shows up. The God heals the needy, the oppressed, from the clutches of evil. And so in a shocking turn, in the darkest parts of Jeremiah's lives, when, when uh, the darkest part of his life, when all things seem to have been lost, when all peace and justice and goodness seem to have disappeared, God shows up. Then, the most unexpected news that God not only hears Jeremiah's prayer, but brings life into the middle of that prayer. That's the central story of Jeremiah, and that's actually the central story of the whole of the scriptures, you guys. The God of the Bible is not just a God of the mountaintops. He's a God of the stocks, a God of the twisting pain in our lives as well. It's a God who descends into the suffering and grief and loss of our lives and brings us through those things into life and healing. With this God, suffering never gets the last word. And if we keep reading this story, we find that truth bursting forth from these pages. See, the story of Jeremiah is actually a forerunner to a different story. The different story that this is pointing to, it's a story of one who also had 40 lashes. It's a story of one who also was tortured at the hands of religious leaders. It's the story of one who lamented, who cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the story of Jesus. You guys, it's in the cross of Jesus Christ that Jeremiah's lament and our lament find their hope fulfilled. God has heard, and God has acted. Our hope is in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's in the cross of Jesus Christ that we find God's descent into our brokenness. It's in the cross of Jesus Christ that we find the remarkable news, the tender whisper of God, which says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's on the other side of the cross that we find the life-giving presence of God which heals and reshapes all of the broken pottery in our lives and brings it back together. It's on the other side of the cross that we find a God who brings justice to the oppressed, who wipes every tear from our eyes, who makes right all things. And so whatever we've done to one another, whatever we've had done to us, whatever losses we've experienced, it's in Jesus that they can be reworked and transformed. The entire life of Jesus is all about that. It's one giant story of human brokenness and lament being grieved and then being met by Jesus and being transformed, like the blind man we read about earlier. And that's why, friends, we come to this table over here every week. It's the most important thing we do. The most important thing we do, because this table shouts to us the needed reminder that Jesus is right here. He joins us meets us. His body and blood are inviting us every week. He's speaking to us, friends. He's saying, I know. And I'm right beside you. I feel what you feel. And I'm here for you. When death closes in, when you feel beyond what you can bear, when you have nothing left to go on, it's there that I'll meet you. And it's there that I'll heal you. It's there that I'll walk alongside you into an expansive land of life, peace, and grace. So trust me. Give yourself to me. I've put death to death so that you wouldn't face it as the final word. Come to me. Lament to me. Follow. Let's pray.